lead. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but naturalism wins in a half. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. The Expressway Stakes has become the harbinger of the Sydney Autumn Carnival. Inaugurated in 1974 when I'm Scarlet was the winner, the Expressway has become the first stepping stone for top-class horses embarking on an autumn campaign. Horses like Zephyr Bay, Luskin Star, Kingston Town, Sir Dapper, Saintly, Tie the Knot and Lonro. Only elite performers are capable of winning the Expressway first up before going on to Group 1 success over longer distances. Kingston Town is the best example. In the autumn of 1980, he put together wins in the Expressway, the Heritage, the Rose Hill Guineas, the Tancred, the AJC Derby and the Sydney Cup. The Expressway Stakes has been run at all four metropolitan tracks over varied distances, but has been fixed at 1,200 metres since 2005. The 2023 edition of the Group 2 Wait for Age Sprint will be run at Rose Hill on Saturday, January the 28th for $250,000. The Expressway Stakes is just the start of an elite Sydney Autumn Carnival culminating in the championships on the 1st and 8th of April. A few months ago, Mark de Montfort would have rated as one of the fittest 63-year-olds in racing. He was still riding all of his own horses in work and playing golf at a high standard. His fitness stood him in good stead during a riding career that brought him 1,200 wins and 13 Group 1s. He turned to training about 14 years ago and for most of that time has rarely had more than half a dozen horses in work. I think it's fair to say he rode better horses than he ever got to train, but Mark seemed to extract a win or two from the majority of horses to pass through his Warwick Farm stables. In the middle of this year, he suddenly became conscious of fatigue and a shortage of breath whenever he exerted himself beyond normal limits. The effects were most noticeable if one of his horses happened to pull hard on the training track. One sharp chest pain was all Mark needed to visit his GP, who in turn referred him to a cardiologist. Extensive tests revealed a condition called bradycardia, which in the simplest terms means an abnormally slow heart rate. It's not hard to imagine Mark's feelings when the specialist told him that his lifestyle would have to change drastically. He'd been riding thoroughbreds most days for almost 50 years. His decision to quit immediately was partly motivated by the fact that he wanted to spend more time with his mother Gwen, who'd been seriously ill for some time and passed away in mid-November. Mark's online to talk to us now. Mark, condolences on the loss of your wonderful mum, who I had the pleasure to meet several times over the years, and her passing came right on top of your own bad news. Yes, Tappy, yeah, thanks for that. Um, Yeah, coincided with the news I had, which made the news I had uh, 
seem quite insignificant um, as to when uh, mum took ill and went to hospital. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was, the one good good part about it all was I spent more time with mum over the last few um, weeks. So, um, yeah, it was sad, but um, life goes on, doesn't it? Mm. You were so busy, in fact, spending time with Gwen in her final weeks, you really didn't have time to think about your own immediate future. No, I hadn't worried about it at all, John. I, I, my horses had been dispersed to a few other trainers and I was quite content they were going to be happy where they were, uh, mainly with Jared Austin at Warwick Farm. So um, I was always very concerned about my well-being of my horses all through my training career and I, I love them like pets, to be honest, which mm. probably didn't help me training them, but um, I just adored them. So I was quite gratified that Jared took them in. They were okay and uh, I was able to go up and see mum pretty much every day for quite a while. You must have been mystified when your energy levels suddenly dropped off. You've always been such an active bloke. I was a bit... um, I kept trying to talk myself into the fact when I was running short of breath when riding horses that it was a bit of a fitness thing as I was over, you know, 63 years of age. I figured, well, as you get older, I'm probably just running out of gas a bit quicker, but um, it just seemed a little bit unusual because I'd been riding, as you said, for 49 years, basically, Mm. pretty much every day, barring injuries. Um, So I knew it wasn't really a fitness thing. So once I saw the specialist, we worked out what it was, and Mm. hence the immediate stoppage. And it took just one little chest pain to send you off to that specialist? Yeah, I had a few issues struggling for breath, but this one incident when I got off the horse and I was on my own, I just had this incredible pain. I thought, this is not right. So, um, yeah, Mm. that was it. It led me to the doctor, which led me to the specialist. Now, Mark, this condition, bradycardia, I imagine would be barely noticeable if you happen to be working in an office. Uh, no, I don't even notice it walking around, John, uh, even playing golf for that matter, just doing casual things. Mm. Um, no, no, it never never raised its head. And because I've had a bit of a foot injury, I'd stopped running for the last year or two. So um, I probably would have noticed it had I been running around. Um, but, um, yes, yeah, so no, no, not noticeable at all until under a little bit more stress, pressure, I'd mm. say. So, um but I'm okay with it now, so I'm just not riding, that's all. A mare called Simo's Girl will always have the distinction of being Mark de Montfort's last win as a trainer. She won a race at Queen Beanne, and I think Blake Spriggs was the jockey. Um, yeah, that would have been it. Yeah, yeah it was too. So um, she was a favourite of mine. Um, Simo's Girl, lovely filly. Um, she's won two races. She's with Jared Austin now, so she'll be coming back from a break shortly and racing within the you know next month or so, I hope. Mm. But, uh, yeah, she was a favourite, a lovely horse to ride. She, she caused me no problem when I rode her track work, so yeah. she was okay. She was a lollipopper, as we say, with the trotters. Ah, oh, she was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I could ride her with two fingers yeah. on the reins. She was easy. Now, this Brady Cartier you're talking about, is only one of your health issues. You've been nursing a toe injury for quite some time, which is now causing you great grief. Now, Mark, it's a bit complicated. I'm going to invite you 
to describe the circumstances under which you sustained this injury, and some people <laughs> might find this hard to believe. Yeah, yeah, I found it hard to believe myself. Um, I've got what you call a, a, a claw-toe, um, where the uh, ligament in the toe is virtually frozen and my one of my toes is shaped like a claw and mm. causing quite discomfort, discomfort when you put shoes on and uh, riding boots in particular. It was been quite a nuisance. Happened before COVID, but uh, I originally dislocated it. But the, the story behind the dislocation was quite unbelievable. Through all the rides I've had and track falls and incidents, this was uh, – Quite unbelievable how I dislocated the toe. I was at home, dressing quickly to go to the races to saddle up one of my horses at Kembla Grange, pull my pants up quickly. Unfortunately, the cuff of the pant caught the top of the toe, dislocating the toe straight up in the air. And as I stared down <laughs> in the bathroom, I looked at it and thought, why is that toe pointing straight in the air? Mm. I'm running late for the races. So I knew I dislocated it. I knew I hadn't broken it. I didn't think I'd broken it. Mm. Um, so I sort of pushed it down and tried to manipulate it back where it should have been. But anyone who's had dislocations, whether they be fingers or elbows or shoulders, they know that uh, you can probably get your own finger back from a dislocation, mm. which I have. Uh, but a toe was quite hard. And running short of time going to the races, I just sort of shoved it down, put a sock on it and put the shoe on it and, and uh, put up with it for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It was quite painful. Um, and then finally I went to a podiatrist to see if he could do something about this injured toe because it was bugging me. He looked at it and uh, he said, oh, it's it's stuffed. You need an operation on that one. Oh, um, yeah. You left it too long. Mm-hmm. I left it more than, more than two weeks before I did anything about it. We couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Went to a specialist. Um, just prior to COVID, and I was booked in for an operation to get it fixed. Well, COVID put play to that. So I've been putting up with quite a painful foot mm. for a few years now, and um, I'm actually now waiting for the hospital to give me the okay to go and have the operation, mm. which I'll have to re-break the toe, um, I think sever the tendon, repair it, um, straighten it, put a nail from the tip of the toe through the bone, and uh, I've got to wear a – Moon bit, I'd imagine, for anywhere between six and 12 weeks. Mm. Wait for the toe to repair and then I'll be back in business. I'll be mm. able to run, hopefully, and walk comfortably and wear normal shoes. Mm. Now, Mark, the only way you've been able to get a little bit of relief lately is to let that toe protrude from a hole that you punched in your boot. Well, that's right. My riding boots were the hardest issue because uh, – my foot was squashed in the boot and obviously I went and bought larger than normal boots to give myself some more room, but the injured toe was elevated quite high on my foot and it would rub immensely every morning. I was like in pain every morning. I couldn't get the boot off quick enough and then I realised one morning I looked at it and I couldn't put up with the pain anymore and I grabbed a knife and cut a hole through the boot and worked out if I can cut a little patch through the boot and uh, open the flap up and my toe can pop out the little flap. Yeah. So that worked. <laughs> That's worked for the last year and a half, I think. Yeah. Um, just cutting the pieces of the Aaron Williams boots every time I bought a new pair. I just had to get the knife out straight away and yeah. cut a hole about an inch by three quarters of an inch in the yeah. leather. 
Yeah, in, in an R.M. Williams well. boot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> that was painful in itself. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mark, you tell me the surgery will be complex and the recovery long and painful. You're not looking forward to it. Yeah, no, not looking forward to it. I've had many operations through broken bones, um, handled them quite easily most of the time, but this one's going to sound a little bit ordinary. Um, a specialist has to – I have a second toe that's taken advantage of the first toe that's risen up and mm. it's taken its spot. So it looks like I'm, when you cross your fingers, it looks like I've crossed my toes. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't be any luck, I can tell you, crossing your toes. Anyway, the operation will be uh, – he's got to re-break both toes actually and mm. um, put nails through both both the toes. So I'll have little nails protruding out of the moon boot. Mm. Uh, yeah, the specialist thought anywhere between originally six and eight weeks, but now he's he's pushed it out to about twelve weeks now as it's got worse as time's yeah. gone on. So um, yeah, so a bit of um, yeah, a bit of patience required there, and goes through a little bit of pain. It's only an overnight operation, so as I say, it's not the end of the world. It's just a toe. So, um, <laughs> but unfortunately, any anything I've wanted to do, I'll have to put on hold for a couple of months once the operation starts. Of course. Well, you haven't lost your sense of humour, mate. That's good to see. Let's change to a more pleasant subject. A mayor called Red Letter Days played a double role in your career. She was your last Metropolitan winner as a jockey. Uh, that was in August of 2007. And a few months later, she became your very first winner as a trainer. How did that play out? Uh, Red Letter Days, trained by Ken Callaghan from um, Goldman. I'd won about six or seven races on her. I rode her virtually her whole career. Mm. Um, she wanted a second start in a race at Goulburn, and I just kept riding her and winning on her. And I rode her on a Wednesday at Canterbury, that date that you said, mm. and uh, I won on her that day, and that was the last city meeting run uh, when the EI struck Sydney. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and I had been thinking about going to training, um, and after that Wednesday I thought I want to train now, but because racing was shut down only three days later in Sydney, um, I kept race riding for a while and I still kept riding Red Ladder Days. I think I went another country race on her mm. uh, as I was still able to race down in the Canberra region at the time, if mm. you remember. Yeah. Um, and anyway, uh, as I finished, I decided to hang on my boots and I quietly retired from race riding. My final race day was a day in Canberra mm. and um, rode a couple of horses that day and was unplaced on my last ride, and uh, the following weekend I received my licence to train at Rose Hill, mm. and when racing was allowed to commence again. Red Letter Day stayed obviously with Ken Callaghan for its next few runs, and uh, the horse had a lovely owner from up around the Northmead area, mm. and um, she was disappointed when the horse was getting beaten a few times without me riding her, so she rang me and said, would you like to train her? Ah. So I only had two horses at the time, I think, or three when I started. So she came on board and quite remarkably she only raced a few weeks later and she turned out to be my first winner as a trainer at uh, Queen Beehan. So yeah. she was my last winner as a jockey and my first winner as a trainer. And you'll never forget her, red letter days. No, you won't forget her. 
I think it's fair to say McClintock was the best horse you trained. He was unraced when you got him, but you took him to six wins and 13 placings for more than half a million dollars. How did you get him in the first place? Um, as I'd started to train at Rose Hill, John, um, by this stage I had four horses, I think. Um, Jerry Harvey was very generous in giving horses out to different trainers. I think he had about 40 trainers on his on his books. Mm. Um, he said that he'd have a horse for me. And um, I think about five or six horses turned up at Rose Hill for Chris Waller, who, who trained quite a lot of horses for Jerry at the time. Mm. And um, maybe five or six turned up on the one particular day on a float and um, he only had room for all bar one of the horses. So um, this particular horse just got walked down to my stables and he was mine, uh, which was McClintock. Oh, and yeah. um, didn't look much of a racehorse, to be honest, big fluffy bear of a thing and um, quite a gross sort of horse. And um, I thought, well, anything will do me for now. I only had a few horses and mm. he turned out to be quite a handy horse for me. Oh, he did. You won the Group 3 Bill Ritchie with him in 2009 and then you slipped him to Melbourne where you won a Group 3 at Caulfield, he lined up on Derby Day in the Amy Stakes, another Group 3, and ran a blinder to finish a very close second. I'll bet you got off your seat at the 200. Yeah, well, he was a bit of a leader and he, he led all the way at Caulfield two weeks earlier on Caulfield Cup Day, which was a great buzz as mm. a trainer just to be there on Caulfield Cup Day. Then I was there on Derby Day two weeks later and... He was a couple in front and he, he just sort of stopped the last 50 metres and his ears pricked and got run down right on the line. And I remember Glenn Schofield had rode the horse. Um, he came in and said, you wouldn't believe it. He said he was left on his own in front, which he quite often was. At the time, the camera, that was when the camera was on the back of the ute running down the straight in front of the field, probably mm. 30, 40 metres. Yeah. And uh, Glenn said at the time, the horse wouldn't take his eyes off that car, that vehicle, as it ran down the straight, and he lost concentration. And uh, I think Glenn mentioned it to the stewards after the race, and they actually finished up stopping those trucks from uh, that car from driving down in front of the field because it was a little bit Mm -hmm. off-putting, especially for my bloke who was on the rail probably only 30 metres away from that vehicle as it it sort of raced down the track uh, in front of us, or obviously on the inside fence, but uh, it was enough to put my bloke off and just uh, he paddled the last 50 metres and that was it. So, mm. But he was a great buzz being down there. Oh, absolutely. Now, you lost McClintock for a while when he went to Singapore. He didn't win a race up there. How did he get to Singapore? Um, well, Jerry Harvey at the time who owned the horse, McClintock, he had a horse that, that had been sent to Singapore to race under his banner and it had a, quite a bit of success over there, I think, or had a bit of success. And uh, I think they decided that McClintock's not a Group 1 horse, so we'll send him over there. Mm. I remember at the time saying to Claire Bird, who was managing um, Jerry's horses, he was quite finicky, McClintock, and quite difficult to handle at times. Mm. I remember saying at the time, I don't think he'll, he'll survive in Singapore. He won't like it. Mm. I'd ridden in Singapore for years on and off. I knew how the humidity can affect a lot of horses, mm. and I knew humid humid days had affected McClintock quite often. So 
I could tell riding McClintock out some warm mornings, his breathing would sort of increase and he'd start this little pitter-patter breathing so I wouldn't work him fast, I'd go slow. Mm. And I remember when uh, I got told uh, McClintock was going to go to Singapore to race, I know the circumstances over there, I know how tough it is on horses, and I knew at the time he won't handle it. I did state that, but uh, I think Claire just brushed it off as that's what all trainers say when they're going to lose a horse, they yeah. won't handle it. But anyway, mm. um, he went over there and went for a good trainer over there and only had four or five starts, but he ran last every time. Mm. Uh, he'd been injured once, went over there. Um, he cracked his skull. Uh, I think they tied him up too tight once in a – the type stalls where they tie them up. Mm. He never liked that. McClintock, well, they tried that and he flipped over and banged his head. And so he had a terrible time. And um, I got a phone call from Claire Bird after the horse had been there a while. So look, we're retiring the horse. And uh, I got told uh, by Jerry's manager that um, the horse, you can have the horse if you want. I chased up if I could bring the horse home. It cost me nearly $30,000 actually. Oh, uh, to bring the horse home. Mm. Yeah, I just felt sick in my stomach that, you know, my, my first city winner, my first group winner was going to finish his days over there. Mm. So I brought him home, which meant that he was signed over to myself. I uh, came home in terrible condition, looking poor and dreadful. I, so he was virtually going to retire here. Yeah. But I left him in the stables for a few months to build up his – to build him up, his body he looked terrible, uh, and he got better and better. The couple of months I kept him at the stables, and I put a saddle on him just to give him something to do and work him and try and canter him, and he looked better and better. And all of a sudden, he started to take shape and started to enjoy life again. So um, mm. I prepared him for a first up effort, which I never thought that was going to happen. It was long and painstaking the months it took to get him there to the races, but mm. I took him to Melbourne. We yeah. first start back from probably 12 months break. Right. Um, well, it was two it was, years after you won the original Group 3 with him at Caulfield. Yeah, so he'd been – hadn't raced for almost a year when I raced him in uh, at Caulfield, mm. and he was, I think, 200 to 1. Mm. And um, he got run down the very last ride by um, David Van Dyke's horse in Melbourne. Um which was, you know, the horse went fantastic. He went so good and I was so yeah. pleased with him, how well he went. And uh, ironically, the prize money he collected for second covered his expenses that yeah. I'd saved him with. So um, it worked out quite good. And then he retired only a couple of runs later and I gave him to a lovely lady who's cared for him since. So yeah, all worked out okay for him. So yeah. I was quite satisfied, yeah. He was ridden in that race at Caulfield by... Laurie Ray, uh, who was a Warwick Farm jockey at the time. She's now training at Warwick Farm under the name of Laurie Parker and doing a good That's job. Right. Yep. Yeah, well, Laurie, Laurie was my apprentice uh, at the time, so I was quite chuffed that I could put my own, I could put whoever I want on the horse. It was my horse. So uh, yeah. I flew her down there and she had a great buzz, but, yeah, it was just the last stride she got rolled. It was, mm. But anyway, it uh, wasn't a bad result. You trained a grey mare called Country Matters a few years ago. It got you a little bit, a bit excited at one stage because she won three straight, including a very impressive win over 2,600 metres at Randwick. 
She was an unlucky third after that at Rose Hill. Then she disappeared. What happened to Country Matters? Well, I thought she was going to be my best horse uh, that I'd that I'd saddle up at the time. Um, she showed enormous potential once she went over a distance, uh, and I thought oh, I've got some sort of cup horse here. You know, any sort of cup would have done me, but um, huh. she looked like she was going to be a very good stayer. Um, she progressed from a mile race to a mile and a quarter race to a mile and a half race, and uh, she won that race. Uh, it ran quite convincingly, and I thought, oh, I've got a good stayer here. Then I gave her one more run in a benchmark 80. And uh, James Innes, not James Innes Jr., but Jimmy Innes, James Innes Jr.'s father, had ridden Country Matters for the three wins in a row. Yeah. He was suspended and couldn't ride at the, the fourth time, and Lynn Schofield rode her, not knowing the mare. She was certainly beaten. She ran fourth or something, uh, held up on the fence, and I thought, well, I've got a really good stay here. She went out for a spell, all excited about when she came back, but unbelievably she uh, got hurt in the paddock and did a tendon. So oh, um, that was retired, so it ended pretty quickly. So um, on we went again for something else. But, yeah, she mm. was going to be a good star. I thought she was a good star. She looked like being a good star, and she was a good star, but – yeah, so we never got to see the best of her. Now, mate, let's go back to your riding days. Your first apprenticeship was with a great horseman called Frank Penfold, who trained his horses from a riding school just a short distance from the present site of the Westmead Hospital. Frank was an ex-bushy who'd spent his entire life with horses. There was nothing he couldn't do with them, and what a great rider he was. He was one of those tried and noted riders that Banjo Patterson talked about. Yeah, he was a, a great rider, big man, um, but he could sit on a horse. He had this lovely pony he used to ride, Smokey. Uh, he used to use that horse with all the breakers, so I'd be riding the breakers and Frank would have this big Mexican saddle on his horse, Smokey, and he'd, if he was fearful that the horse I was riding might buck or do something out of the ordinary wrong, Frank used to just tie the horse's yearlings head collar yeah. with a rope tied up to his pummel of the saddle and the poor horse didn't know what to do. It just went with Frank's pony and Frank would just take us around lap after lap. But, no, he's a, he's a good rider, good good teacher, and um, it was probably the best thing ever for an apprentice jockey to have. Oh, yes, absolutely. To kick off mm. with a trainer who knows how to ride and how to handle horses expertly. He had a riding skill, so I could ride on the ponies at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I progressed to the yearlings, and um, that was a perfect education, actually, now I think back, for mm-hmm. an apprentice. Um, and then I went to a bigger stable later, obviously. But, yeah. um, it was a great start. I wish every kid could have the same start, but mm-hmm. it's not to be. You know, Frank Penfold was pretty much a self-taught racehorse trainer, but he learned his lesson well enough to run third in a Melbourne Cup with a horse called Dane's Son, and he went within a head of winning a Victoria Derby with Dane's Son's full brother, Pyramal. Now, those horses were before your time, Mark, but I bet you heard plenty about them. Yeah, well, I rode them track work. Did you? I rode Dane's Son track work. Oh, yeah, he was my first bolter at Rose Hill. I did five laps of the damn track there. <laughs> and I'll never forget, Frank was at the gap laughing his head off every lap. Um, I couldn't pull a horse up for the life of me. 
And uh, I wasn't going to go the fast because the damn track at Roseville, anyone that knows it, it's only like a 600-metre track around. Mm. So it's quite tight. But obviously I was just learning to ride at the time and it was a good, good buzz to get on the big black horse, Dane's son. This was only a month before he went to Melbourne. Yeah. And uh, I did five laps there and Frank never stopped laughing until the horse finally decided to pull up with me. And uh, didn't worry him. He ran third in the Melbourne Cup, so yeah, probably helped him. Didn't hurt but, him. Um, that's right. Yeah, didn't hurt him. But um, yeah, so I never rode him again after that. Obviously, <laughs> Mike, I'll get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll come back after this. Do any of your horses struggle to finish their feeds during a racing preparation? Have you been unhappy with the way they look on race day? Do what many other trainers do with those finicky horses and introduce them to Pride's easy performance. By stimulating their appetites with Pride's highly palatable set recipe feed, you might find they're not leaving a flake in their feed bins. Correct nutrition helps racehorses to deal with the stresses of racing and training. It helps them to get that elusive win when they're in the right race and most importantly, helps them to bounce back after the event. Pride's Easy Performance provides the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses get to the line while helping them to maintain inner health. Pride's Easy Performance, the complete nutritional feed for equine performance athletes. Frank Penfold was happy for you to transfer to the Ray Guy stable where you would get many more race riding opportunities and your luck was in. Ray had a vacancy. Yeah, well, I first went to Ray for my first job mm-hmm. uh, because I couldn't ride horses and I was only 14 and a half at the time. He suggested I, I went to a fellow who used to break in a lot of his horses, mm-hmm. which happened to be Frank Penfold. So that's why I went to Frank. I was with Frank for a couple of years and I uh, only had seven race rides under Frank, but the seven race rides took me seven months to have seven rides. Mm. Um, so it wasn't hard for me to work out to do the math that one ride a month is probably not going to make a career for a jockey or person like me. So mm. I went back to Ray Guy and said, I'm the fellow that was here a few years ago. You said, go and learn to ride. I can ride a little bit now. Had a few race rides. And uh, as it turned out, his apprentice, Donnie Mitchell, at the time, was uh, coming out of his apprenticeship. And uh, even though Ray had another apprentice there, Tony Jackson, Ray said, well, you can come on board now because Donnie's going to be a senior rider. And uh, it suited Ray Guy at the time and it suited me. So away I went and Ray, Ray was a good trainer. He, he was prolifically getting winners every week mm. somewhere. Right. And he didn't have access to the expensive yearlings either, Mark. So many of his winners were by average stallions, but he'd get them to win a race somewhere. Yeah, we, from memory, like he had 40 stables, but he'd get 80 winners in a year, Mm. you know, metropolitan, provincial, without a problem. Um, So it seemed like everything in the stable won a race, it seemed Mm. to me at the time. Um, And Ray put me on everything, basically. No matter how ordinary I rode them, I just kept riding them. Mm. He was a fantastic boss for that. And you can get away with it back then because the trainers were like, Everything they said was gospel and was pretty right. And mm. when they said to an owner, you've got to put my kid on, they just did. 
Uh, whereas nowadays, um, you know, it goes to a vote with syndications, and you know, it's 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 so difficult to to keep kids on horses when they're trying to learn to ride. Uh, so the bosses haven't got a big say. But back then, Ray would put me on everything, basically everything. Mm. It was great. Your first winner was for Ray Guy. It was at Kembla Grange on a very fast little mare called Tudor Vane. She could really scoot. Perfect ride for an apprentice, wasn't she? Yeah, I think she won upwards of 17 or maybe 20 races. Mm. And she only ever won for claiming apprentices. Mm. And I think she was the first winner for about six different apprentices. Incredible. Their first winners. Yeah. She just, she would go to the, she would leave the enclosure with the pony, let off the pony. So the apprentice didn't have to steer her to the gates. You stood in the gates and she just hit the ground running in 1,000 metre races and just let all the way. Mm-hmm. It was, all you had to do was pull the right rein mm-hmm. a couple of times to get around the turn. And, um, and that was it. No, she's, she's a great little mare. Um, mm. You don't see those horses nowadays. No, Tudor Vane. Well, you must have considered giving it away more than once during your apprenticeship because you kept hurting yourself. Collarbones, wrists, legs. You could dance on those crutches in the end. Yeah, I, I broke a lot of bones, Johnny, but um, it never. I never thought about not riding, keep riding. I... I was that hungry to get going with a career and just broken leg after broken leg and broken arms and then two broken arms in one go. It just kept happening, but mm. I just figured it was par for the course. To be honest, I didn't I didn't know any different. I mm. just figured that's what happens to jockeys. They get hurt a bit and keep going. So, mm. um, you know, I got hurt more than normal, but um, had a great run, you know, after a while. But, no, uh, I just kept going with it and, uh, mm. yeah, trainers kept putting me on and kept riding winners, so. As far as I was concerned, I had a trouble-free run. <laughs> Not really. Now, mate, all these years on, I am still trying to work out how your first Group 1 winner as a jockey, Red Nose, in the 1979 Canterbury Guineas, was trained by Theo Green. How did you get on a Theo Green-trained horse in a Group 1 race? He had an army of talented young jockeys. Yeah, he's, obviously everyone knew that Theo used his own boys, whether they were senior riders or apprentices, but it was quite remarkable. At the time, there was a horse in our stable, the Ray Guy stable, called Brandy Sipper, mm-hmm. who I'd written, owned by the Hyperion Syndication. Yeah. And I was expecting to ride it that weekend in the Canterbury Guineas, but at the time... I, was, I think I was the leading apprentice of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told the one occasion where a syndication had decided we don't want to use the apprentice in the Group 1 race, we're going to go with the jockey. Mm-hmm. I was a bit shattered at the time because uh, my boss had put me on virtually every runner he'd ha- ever had. I was a bit shattered at the time, and, and you wouldn't believe it a day or two later, my boss says to me, oh, you're going to ride one of that Canterbury Guineas anyway, one for Theo Green. Good. And I thought, that's strange. Yeah, I'm a Rose Hill apprentice and he's a Randwick trainer and I'd never met him. No. Theo Green, I'd heard of him. But, um, you know, that, that were the days where if you're a Rose Hill kid, you were just a Rose Hill kid. You, yeah. you never went to another track for track work. So mm. I was able to get on this horse in the Rose Hill Guineas and the Canterbury Guineas thinking, I still don't know why I'm on it. Yeah. But anyway, as luck had it, 
Um, I won the race by a short neck, and ironically, I beat my boss's horse, Brandy Sipper. Goodness. So I robbed my boss of his group first one. and possibly group one winner, which he finished up he didn't get. Yeah. And I got group one winner as an apprentice. Mm. Uh, I never understood how Theo gave me the rides, but he finished up putting me on quite a few horses every now and then. Mm. And it was only it was only recently, quite extraordinarily, since my mum passed, um, I didn't even know that they'd kept um, scrapbooks of my riding days early. Mm. And only recently I'm flicking through these scrapbooks that mum had kept, and there's articles before the Canterbury Guineas about Theo Green mentioning oh, you've got to watch this kid. He's a good kid, this kid. Uh, and he was uh, talking about me. Yeah. And he said, he's got balance, he's got this. He wrapped me and wrapped me. And I'd never known that because I virtually never went and read the papers mm. back then. Um, so, so it was probably a good thing you never read about yourself. And uh, I didn't realise until only recently that Theo would give me quite a few raps in the press. Yeah. Even though I wasn't apprenticed to him and wasn't writing for him and – and I looked at the dates of the, this bit of a rap where he gave me, and it was only a week later he put me on the horse in the Canary Guineas. So, Amazing. By the yeah, way, so, who rode Brandy Shipper? Ray Selkrieg. Ray Selkrieg. Yeah, he, he rode quite prolifically for the Hyperion syndication at the time. Mm. But as I say, at the time um, Ray put me on most horses, but that one I wasn't, and quite extraordinary how I knocked him off. Your first Randwick major was the 1985 Doncaster on a horse called Row of Waves for Les Bridge, a trainer with whom you had a very strong association for a lot of years. Was that your first ride for Les? Um, pretty much was, I think. Mm. Um, I'd started riding track work at Randwick. I'd been riding winners for um, TJ Smith and... Um, Peter Cuddy was very good to me at the time. Uh, he, he at the time rode for uh, TJ as well, Peter Cuddy, <laughs> and uh, he'd suggested when I left Roseville to come to Randwick. I used to sit next to Peter in the jockey's room at Randwick where we always mm. had the same seat, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think at the time of always Peter had been riding him. He rode for Lesbridge. Peter couldn't ride the wake in the Doncaster. Mm. And I don't know if Peter got me on the horse. I don't know how I got on the horse, to be honest. It was you never had a manager back then. You never cha- I never chased rides. I just mm. got a phone call from Les Bridge to say, can you ride this horse? I think from memory he had 51 or 52 kilos. Yeah. Uh, um, and yes. anyway, I rode the horse. It was 101 and he won. And so, didn't he have a beautiful run in the race? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it worked out really well. And um, yeah, after we won that, that was Peter Hall, which uh, one of the owners of Royal Waves, and he was great for me when I started training. He gave me two horses right from the start. Yeah. So he always had a horse with me, Peter, so I was mm. always thankful of that with Peter. And, uh, yeah, so that was a good memory of Royal Waves and mm. it led to bigger and better things with Les because uh, I started riding more horses for Les and he had a nice little stable at the time and we had a great run. So, um, mm. Well, the following year, Mark, 1986, Tommy Smith put you on a horse called Chanticleer in the Epsom for Robert Holmes a court. Now, you'd ridden this horse in a lead-up race at Rose Hill and he didn't impress you very much. Um, yeah, I think Malcolm rode in the, the lead-up race before the Doncaster, or mm. before the Epsom, 
Um, and TJ must have had a couple in the race. Anyway, he put me on the horse in the race. And I remember he said before the race, TJ, um, they think this can't run 14. He needs a mile. And I think he might have weakened over 1,400 the run before. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, probably can't run a mile. I don't know why he put me on it in the mile race. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, but he knew better. TJ, he was a genius at that. And he told me just go out and get going on it from barrier 16 or 17. And this horse will lead all the way if you don't stop him mid-race. And I just <laughs> let him run and he won. Oh, he so, Yeah, won easily. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, Mark, in the autumn of 1987, you picked up the ride on a plain little horse called Myacard in the Rawson Stakes. Shane Dye had the opportunity to ride him. He jumped off to ride the boom horse, Bone Crusher, who was on everybody's lips at the time. You'd had one previous ride on Myacard. Uh, I'd ridden in, uh, in a barrow trial, John. Oh, that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's all. Just and that preparation that he was having. You know, I remember he was in the first trial at Rose Hill and whoever was meant to ride him was running late for the trials and I was there and Doc said, jump on this bloke and just give an easy trial. And I remember after the trial I said to Doc, I said, wow, I said, uh, I'll ride this horse anywhere, anytime. It just mm. felt sensational to me, the horse, in the yeah. trial. Mm. Um, and then months later, I get the phone call off Doc Chapman. The horses returned from Melbourne, going to run in the Rawson Stakes at Rose Hill, and said, "You're riding the uh, Rawson Stakes." And I didn't, obviously, uh, at the time. I said, "No." He said, "Well, you ride that bloke you trial for me." He said, uh, "You said you'd ride him any time, anywhere." He said, "So mm. Shane's going to ride Bone Crusher. You can jump on this bloke." And he was about twenty to one chance at the time. Bone, uh, my card. Yes, he was. So I was just grateful to get on his back, to be honest, knowing mm. he was a nice horse. Mm. And um, never for once thought we'd be beating Bone Crusher or our way with oh, no. Star, who, who'd run one, two in the Cox Plate yep. the year before. I just thought it was nice to get on the horse after I trialled him months earlier. And yeah. uh, anyway, we blew him away that day, and I was able to stay with the horse in the Tancred, which we blew them away again, and then mm. that led to the Derby, which he won the Derby easy. So it was. That's why. It's funny I say that some some riders. Or apprentices, you have to ride horses, just keep riding them because you never know when your day comes. Um, if you jump on one for someone and help them out, yeah, it's amazing how the world turns around. And all of a sudden, months later, I, because I'd done Doc a favour, yeah. rode the horse in the trials. I had ridden for Doc over a period of time anyway, but um, he got stuck one day. He remembered mm. that I helped him when he got stuck. So. Yep. Uh, it's, uh, you, you're never out of it in this business. I know what, that. What goes around comes around. Now, that derby you're talking about, Maya Card's stablemate was in the race and Shane Dye was the rider, a horse called Imprimata. He led. You were back a bit in the field, but from the half mile, you started to poke up along the fence. Now, Shane Dye looked around several times before rolling away from the rail presenting you with a charmed run. He copped a six-month's holiday. You rode the winner of the derby. Maya Card bolted in. He was absolutely airborne, wasn't he, in the autumn of 87? Yeah, he was flying the horse at the time, John, and um, I knew Imprimata was going to lead the race. He had led the previous start in the uh, tank route, and he mm. runs at quite a clip, Imprimata, 
and it was the same out of my card, but we were never out to do any favours for each other, Shane or I. Um, Shane was always trying to get back on my card, so uh, he got stuck on Imprimata. But I remember the time I was – all Doc said before the race, Doc Chapman, he said, just don't get stuck on the fence. And after 200 metres of the race of the derby, here I, here I am 13th on the fence thinking <laughs> all Doc said was don't get stuck on the fence and now I'm on the fence mm. on a horse who religiously loved the rail. He ducked in twice with me going to the rail when I'd won the previous two races Ooh, on didn't him. didn't he? Sharply, so, yeah. So I didn't really want to leave the fence. So I got stuck on the fence and from a 1,000 metres to the turn, I got up inside a few runners and I went from like 13th on the fence to like 5th on the fence. Mm. I looked ahead and Imprimata was the leader and starting to give ground. And I remember at the time thinking, well, I can't get out. I'm just going to have to shoot up his inside. And I looked ahead thinking he's a little bit off the fence. Mm. My bloke doesn't want to leave the fence. I'm just going to ram him through there. Well, mm. just when I got close to his heels, Shane had looked away around to his right as we came around the turn. And I think he noticed the uh, the 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 uh, headgear on uh, my card, he would have recognised the blinkers that he wore. Mm. And he probably thought, oh, that's my card. I can't get in his way because mm. I never called. And as I got closer, Shane sort of shifted out another horse. I thought, mm. oh, well, we can fit three of us through here now. Well, my card just shot through and uh, won the race comfortably. But then everyone at the time thought that Shane had done me this favour by running off the turn. But... Mm. Yeah, it was all blown out of proportion. It was never intentional. It was just that I was going to go there no matter what, and I think he just panicked at the time, Shane, and yeah. saw me and thought he didn't want to knock me into the fence, so he, he sort of went out a bit. Mm. And, um, yeah, it robbed me of my, my one of my biggest days because he got more of the press than I did. Yeah. Uh, not that he wanted it, but yeah, mm. he got six months for aiding a stable mate in the race. So, um, yeah, it was terrible at the time for him. I'm just looking uh, at the timepiece, Mark. We're, we're starting to bog down a bit. Now, yep. while on Meyer card, Doc Chapman elected to back him up in the Sydney Cup. Kerry Packer, who was punting his socks off at the time, backed your mount, Meyer card. You can imagine what he said under his breath when his own horse, Major Drive, got up to beat you by about a neck. That story has really become folklore. Yeah, that was when um, he had lost, obviously was losing money over that weekend to, I think Bruce McHugh was the bookie that was yeah. taking his bets, Packer. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so he, he, um, Greg Hall had told Packer that he thought my car was a certainty he wouldn't beat him. Mm. So Packer went with Greg's information and it uh, turns out Greg followed me the whole race um, on major drive and um, – yeah, he nutted me the last 100 metres. My horse had died on his run yeah. and wasn't the same horse as what had won the derby. He was well and truly spent by then, my card, and it was remarkable that he ran second. Mm. Um, I didn't think he was a two-miler, but he was just a champion three-year-old that raced out of his skin that autumn, and yeah. um, it was a shame he got beaten, my mm. card. You had great affection for Quick Flick who won 16 races all up at $1.3 million. You won nine on him, including the Sir Bernhardt in Brisbane, the Group 3 Shannon Quality, the Hawkesbury Cup, and then a terrific hat-trick, the Apollo, the Canterbury Stakes and the George Ryder. No wonder you loved him. 
Oh, I did love him. He was a fantastic horse, and um, Jim Donnelly trained him, a friend of mine, and uh, did a marvellous job with the horse. And, uh, yeah, no, he uh, ironically beat Shane Dye in the George Ryder, which made mm. it even all happier. Yeah, so, um, he rode in counter. Yeah, yeah mm. that's right. He loomed up to beat us, and uh, old Quick Flick just kept digging up, digging in and digging in and lasted. Mm. So it was a uh, – Good reward for a good horse. He deserved a Group One, and uh, he'd been so consistent over a couple of years of racing quick flicks. So, mm. no, he was a godsend for me. Tim's been training in Wagga for quite a few years now. He often comes up with a winner in the Riverina. Top horseman. You had a great association with him. Yeah, he's a good trainer, Tim. And um, right from the get-go, I was riding for him, and uh, he had great success early days. And um, he was originally from Wagga. Him and his mm. wife, Tricia, so they finished up going back to Wagga. Yeah. Uh, no, good trainer, no matter where he goes. To the 1999 Golden Slipper. You'd won four straight on Catbird for Frank Cleary, including the Black Opal, and in any other year you would have been confident coming into the Golden Slipper. But there was an enormous rap on Reduce Choice, who'd won two from two, including the Blue Diamond, and you tell a great story about the events of the day. You thought Redoute's choice was a certainty, and so did everybody else. You got in your car to leave your home at Bardwell Park, thinking you might have been a, a rough place chance at best. You turned the car radio on, and you heard some startling news. Yeah, I was backing out the driveway, actually, on my way to the races, and uh, came over the radio, there's a uh, a late scratching at Rose Hill, the Golden Slipper. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I hope it's Redoute's choice. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Redoute's choice. Uh, we had seen him the day before, and the horse didn't look very well. He travelled badly up from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I had looked at him walking to the track the day before thinking, geez, he looked ordinary in the coat. You know, he looked awful. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, to much, more, much to my delight, it was like uh, Redoute's choice, late scratching. So I went from – thinking I'll probably run second to him. Mm. At best to all of a sudden thinking, well, I should win now. He's out of the way. Yeah. So uh, I got to the races extremely confident, I've got to say, because I'd only ever had – I was probably narrow-minded at the time. My only thought was I can't beat Redoubt's choice. He drew three. I drew four. I'll follow him. If he gets a good run, he'll win easy. Mm. If he doesn't get a good run, I'm going to follow him. I won't get a good run. So I'd sort of – probably not the way to look at it, but I had looked at the fact that I'll just run second to him. That'll be good. Yeah. Then he was out of the race. I thought, well, if he's out, um, I hadn't worried about the rest of the horses. I just figured I'll win now. So it was our day. Yeah. Now, where were you in the run in that race? You travelled three wide, didn't you, but you had cover yeah, all I, the way. I jumped, I jumped well. I was in a reasonable spot going to the first term, turn, and there was a bit of carnage happening in front. I remember the horse I was behind, I'm thinking, I'm oh, just going to run up the backside of seven horses here. There's going to be awful trouble. I just come off the three wide, and luckily I missed all the trouble, but then I was posted three wide with cover. But he had a trouble free run, and on the turn I was highly confident, just to tell you the truth. And uh, mm. he only won by a neck, but I just always thought I was going to get there down the straight. I think I only hit him three or four times mm. and put the whip away the last 50. And um, how I beat the line and um, – Shogun Lodge, I think, yes. Mm. Lovely to yeah. have your name on the golden slipper list of winners, Mark DeMontford on Catbird. Now, 
you spent a lot of time overseas honouring riding contracts. You rode in Hong Kong, Malaysia, Singapore, as you mentioned earlier. You had three stints in Mauritius, but I've always had the feeling Singapore was your favourite home away from home. Um, Singapore was good. Uh, it was more westernised than Malaysia, obviously. Um, so my wife enjoyed it more there. And um, it was a good lifestyle there, John. He only rode on the Saturday and Sunday, mm. rode track work every morning. So it was, it was a good lifestyle, just, you know, I'd have to waste hard to lose weight, but being such humid conditions over there, that wasn't hard to do. So you had a quite enjoyable week there all the time. Mauritius I enjoyed a lot. It was in uh, under the same sort of banner as that type of racing, just on the weekends only. So you had all week to play golf, do whatever you want to do. So uh, I, I, I enjoyed them, uh, the overseas trips. It was good. Your wife, Carol, has been very supportive of your overseas riding adventures. Carol was always ready to pack the bags, wasn't she, whenever you came home and said, we're going somewhere? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, never questioned it. And As I say, it was always an okay lifestyle when we went away because you only raced on the weekends. Um, unlike here, you were riding every day pretty much. So, um, mm. yes, yeah, so we were able to do things. So no, they were quite good stints. I'd recommend them for any jockey if they get a chance to go over there, go there. You and Carol had a very successful little business going some years ago. I can recall popping in there one day with a television camera in the Queen Victoria building. It was a busy little sportswear shop. Carol would open the place up every morning and you'd get there when you were finished at track work. Went pretty well for a few years. It was a great location, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a good location. It was a good little shop, sports shop, uh, sporting apparel and footwear. Um, only had it for three years, but um, it was a good business. But it, we, I got the feeling um, beachwear, surfwear was taking over at the time. We were in the shop and it was going to be more popular, whereas uh, we had more of the sporting apparel. Um, so I thought it was time to bail out. And uh, we got out when the going was good. So it was good running a business. It was hard work retail. Any retailer will tell you it's mm. it's, it's hard 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 work, that's for sure. And it's even harder work nowadays, I think. Mm. The, uh, the big uh, rebels and sporting companies are overshadowing the small boutique sports shops now. Yeah. You've been a very keen golfer most of your life, and I know you got down to a three handicap at one stage. What is it now? Uh, it's out to seven now, but um, but I enjoy it. Johnny, I love playing. I play with good friends all the time, so it's a good lifestyle playing golf. It's, it's you can hopefully play till you whatever age you can get to. So, um, but yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah, my handicap goes from anywhere around five, six, seven, eight, seven, six, up and down. Yeah, but um, no, I love it. Live on the back of a golf course, which is handy. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'll say it is. You're one of those blokes who did well at whatever sport you decided to take on. You were a nippy little rugby league halfback at school. You were a pretty good cricketer, top golfer, as we've said, and then you became an outstanding jockey and you even showed some talent, I recall, in the trotting sulky once or twice at charity events. Mark, I think it's fair to say you annoyed a lot of your mates over the years. Probably, bit of a pest, but <laughs> yeah. um, 
I grew up playing sports before I got into racing, so I never wanted to give that away. And um, and now I live a nice lifestyle where I can watch sport now, so and still play golf. But no, I love the the touch foot. It was good for my riding because it was not only great for fitness, but it was great for maintaining my weight. So. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably why I played so much, but I'd play touch footy three nights a week. I'd play squash three mornings a week. I played tennis on Saturday mornings before I went to the races. Yeah. Um, all about losing weight. So, um, but I loved it anyway. So I, I, if I can't play sport, I, I wouldn't want to be alive. No, so I know that. Well, you've got a period of readjustment ahead of you and there's got to be a good foreman's job somewhere for you in Sydney or maybe a role as a racing manager with one of the larger stables. Whatever it might be, whatever may come along, you'll do it on your ear. Well, I hope to, John. Uh, once I get this operation out of the way and, and recoup, which will take a couple of months, um, yeah, I want to dabble in something in the industry. I love it. So uh, it's been my lifestyle. So um, I don't know what else to do, to tell you the truth. So um, mm. so anything in the business or I've, I've – Reapplied and got a stable hand license at the moment, but um, as my training license has been forfeited, so uh, I'll be willing to do anything when I recoup from my operation. So uh, I look forward to it, John. I just can't ride, that's all. But I understand. Well, you did a wonderful job for a lot of years, Mark, and I didn't want you to get away anywhere without allowing me the opportunity to pay you the tribute on a magnificent job. Well done. Thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. The Expressway Stakes has become the harbinger of the Sydney Autumn Carnival. Inaugurated in 1974 when I'm Scarlet was the winner, the Expressway has become the first stepping stone for top-class horses embarking on an autumn campaign. Horses like Zephyr Bay, Luskin Star, Kingston Town, Sir Dapper, Saintly, Tie the Knot and Lonro. Only elite performers are capable of winning the Expressway first up before going on to Group 1 success over longer distances. Kingston Town is the best example. In the autumn of 1980, he put together wins in the Expressway, the Heritage, the Rose Hill Guineas, the Tangred, the AJC Derby and the Sydney Cup. The Expressway Stakes has been run at all four metropolitan tracks over varied distances, but has been fixed at 1,200 metres since 2005. The 2023 edition of the Group 2 Wait for Age Sprint will be run at Rose Hill on Saturday, January the 28th for $250,000. The Expressway Stakes is just the start of an elite Sydney Autumn Carnival culminating in the championships on the 1st and 8th of April.